hello, my name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And today, we're going to be talking about pre-code Hollywood movies. And you may be wondering, wait, I don't know what that is, but Will's going to give you the lowdown. Okay, so, the big period of pre-code movies is 1929 to 1934, period just after the introduction of sound and before the actual real enforcement of the production code. What is the production code, you ask? That was uh, in the 1920s because scandals, sexy scandals, were racking Hollywood. Well, actually, not that sexy. It was... Uh, <laughs> Fatty Arbuckle was accused of killing a, a young woman. Yeah, and also uh, Mabel Normand, the Keystone comedy star, was involved, was the last person to see the director William Desmond Taylor alive. And uh, it's still an unsolved murder. And there was... Uh, Wait, the important cinema club going to crack the case? Uh, yeah, it was me. <laughs> oh, my uh, God. But, you know, in that trial, D Details of affairs and cocaine addiction came out. So that plus risque films in general led to a lot of uh, women's groups, conservative groups, religious groups saying we need a boycott on Hollywood. So Hollywood introduced the production code, which was a self-censorship office that would rein Hollywood successes in to keep movies from being censored at a local level. And for a long time, it was mostly something that was state-run. Movies would be censored based on whatever the state statures would be. Like, maybe, I don't know, Wisconsin hates bare women legs, so yeah. they would censor that. But eventually, that wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. So there was a man called William Hayes that came into the picture. I got some good facts here about William B. Hayes. So, he uh, ruled the production code from 1922 to 1954. Here are his credentials. Former chairman of the Republican National Committee. Ooh, sounds like a good guy. Former U.S. Postmaster General. Oh. Manager of Warren G. Harding's presidential campaign, which means he was tangentially connected to Warren G. Harding scandals and had to resign. <laughs> and a Presbyterian deacon and a God-fearing man. I don't think there's anybody you could trust more than someone with those credentials. <laughs> uh, according to Hal Roach in a documentary I watched, he didn't drink, didn't smoke, but was a real human guy. <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> but for a long time, even with William Hayes as the head of this production code, it wasn't really enforced that much. It all came to a head in these years, 1929 to 1934. And over the last 10 or 20 years, uh, we've seen a rise in uh, kind of the rediscovery of these pre-code movies on DVD box sets and TV screenings and film festivals. Movies that were a little more racy in terms of depiction of sex and drugs, and also a little more violent than you might expect from old Hollywood films. Until the hammer came down. A few movies pushed it too hard and the rules were really put into effect. So what was interesting about like the Hayes Code is that, like I mentioned before, even though that Hayes was in charge, the actual organization was too small to enforce anything. Mm-hmm. So what Hollywood did, and when we talk about pre-code movies, it's not specifically about film history before the code came into play. It's actually usually a small period from 1930 to 1935. Mm-hmm. That when people mention pre-code movies, they usually come from that five-year stretch. Mm-hmm. And one of the movies that we watched was The Red-Headed Woman, which came out in 1932 and was directed by Jack Conway. Had a good time with this one. Yeah, I did too. This movie stars Jean Harlow as Lil, uh, an ambitious woman who seduces, you know, the, guy, the guy's just so weak. I think it, he's played by Chester Morris. It is indeed Chester Morris. Um, she seduces Chester Morris, who is the wealthy uh, wealthy businessman. You know, the guy, fellas like us, we understand. Uh, a sexy lady like Jean Harlow comes along, and once the deed has taken place, you realize, I can't let go to my lovely wife, Irene. Played who by... I've known 
my entire life. Yeah, she's a great woman. She's she's played by the charisma vacuum Layla Hyams. <laughs> it was it might as well have just been a blank screen when she was on screen. <laughs> but Jean Harlow is not going to give Chester Morris up that quickly uh, because Chester Morris is her ticket to high society. So she pursues him and pursues him and pursues him and starts kissing him in phone booths and starts following him until. Chester Morris just can't take it anymore. He doesn't like having his lovely wife have to endure this humiliation, so he divorces her and gets with Jean Harlow and drinks himself into a stupor. And what ends up happening after that is that it's not enough for Jean Harlow. Well, because society, the good folks in high society, they understand how she got to this position. She cheated her way to the top. She wasn't born into it like a good person. <laughs> that's she, right. She used her feminine wiles. <laughs> Which is disgusting. Yeah, and, that, and, that, and that's wrong. And I, Irene is still a beloved figure in town and by the way gene harlow and chester morris move into a mansion across the street from irene just because it was the only, the biggest mansion in town yeah. is what gene harlow says so uh what are you gonna do but all of gene harlow's attempts to break into high society are ruined so what she decides to do is seduce an older wealthy what is he an oil baron or something coal or, baron coal baron and then blackmail him and makes him host a party at her house so they host a party and then everyone leaves a little early and they find out, oh, it's because they're going now to a competing party at Irene's house across the street. <laughs> Why would I want to go with that wet blanket? Fra- I, I would have stayed at Jean Harlow's. She's um, much more fun. <laughs> That's right. And basically what ends up happening is that complications pile upon complications. Things get found out. Chester Morris goes back with his lame wife, Irene. She shoots Chester Morris. <laughs> she does. Jean Harlow does. She Not, does. I, I wouldn't want to slander Irene. <laughs> it doesn't matter because Jean Harlow gets away for it and has a happy ever after in Paris. Does she have a happily? Isn't it implied that she's like living out of a gutter somewhere? No, isn't she was a rich person at the end? Oh, I don't know. Maybe I maybe I missed that part. Anyway, <laughs> maybe I just saw what I wanted to see. Maybe at the I end of the saw movie. what I wanted to see <laughs> because personally, I felt that Jean Harlow gave it to all these wimpy men exactly as they deserved it. Well, there's a whole <laughs> subplot in this movie where not only is she cheating on Chester Morris with. The, the coal baron but she's also cheating on the coal baron with uh, her french driver and there's a hilarious moment when a private investigator finds the proof of the affair and he shows the picture and it, it shows the coal baron uh leaning over next to his car to tie his shoe and behind him the french chauffeur is literally kissing gene harlow from the backseat window it's the most perfectly staged like <laughs> a fair image I've ever seen. So this film was directed by Jack Conway, one of those hundred picture kind of guys. It has the infamy of being originally written by F. Scott Fitzgerald, the first draft, which was then tossed away because it wasn't racy enough, mm. and written by Anita Luce, who mm. did the rewrite on the film. Uh, did you like the film? Yes, I did. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Super fun. Short, Fast, yeah. <laughs> uh, lots of sex, lots of violence. So when you talk about pre-code films, I always wondered like what attracts people to it because there's like whole websites dedicated to it, right? Mm-hmm. Like ah, we're the pre-code archives or Nitrate on the web. Yeah. And what you quickly discover when you watch a bunch of them is, wow, these are super exciting. They are packed with sex and packed with violence. Well, they're, they're, but it's still sort of suggestive. I mean, a little, a lot, but you know, of, it's not yeah. subtext. It's well, text. Yeah. I mean, it's ellipsis. It's like in Babyface, which we'll talk about in a minute, like Barbara Stanwyck will say, why don't we go into the other room? And then it cuts to like the camera 
camera moving from outside the building, moving from one floor to the next floor to symbolize that she's slapped her way up the ladder. Or even in Redheaded Woman, Jean Harlow tells her husband, I just want to bump into this coal baron guy. Just give me a meeting. And then it cuts to the coal baron guy at a window going, oh, I can't believe I did that. I didn't know what, who you were. But and I then think- Jean Harlow like brings up her skirt and she's like, oh, well, now it's too late. <laughs> that is a great scene. I think a lot of the appeal of these movies too is just the cognitive dissonance of an old movie that has any kind of sex in it. I think, uh, you know, there's a tendency to believe that Uh, sex was discovered in the 1960s Mm -hmm. and you know since the hollywood movies of the mid-30s onto the 50s are so rigorously sexless you know it's a surprise that there existed this very brief shangri-la before that i think it's in the same way that people are surprised when they read like ancient greek plays and they're like whoa look at all this sexy time in these or you know the kama sutra is an amusing novelty because it's also an old thing that has sex i guess people at a certain age just assume that everything that came before them didn't have all the stuff that they have in their life yeah that's true and that sort of history uh trends towards progress (laughs) and that we're getting dirtier and dirtier and dirtier as it as it moves along and also we've met our grandparents it's hard to imagine you know. But they did. They did. They were probably Gene Harlow back in the 30s. I mean, in the case of my grandparents, at least five times. <laughs> Whoa. Because they had five kids. I don't know how it happened. They didn't like each other. <laughs> they didn't like trip and fall on each other and then boop, a kid popped out. Well, you know, I think... Listen, they were doing their Christian duty. I guess. That's the only explanation. <laughs> it happened five times, and by the time I was born, they slept in separate rooms. <laughs> did they? Yes. Wow. Yeah. What did you think, even before we talk about Babyface... Of the notion of censorship in this kind of, of in movies in general, uh, you I'm, big censorship I'm, pro. pro? Yeah, you know, I think uh, Western civilization is crumbling over a lack of morals, <laughs> and we have to get back to bedrock Christianity. No, I, uh, I'm against censorship. Sure. Yeah, of course. So am I. Because yeah. why would you? All, all that censorship does is it makes people more interested in the stuff. Yeah, it's true. You know, and people will often make the argument of like, well, you know, you got to take the bad with the good, and you know, if if we're gonna get Last Tango in Paris, you also have to <laughs> suffer through Deep Throat. That was the argument they made in like the 70s, right? Really? It's a date argument. And then they're like, oh, you do realize I'm. Marlon Brando did sexually assault. Yes, but here's the thing. Porn is also great. <laughs> you love porn. Porn's great. Yeah. That's that's why politicians have been, haven't been able to run on like kind of a fire and brimstone censorship platform Because anymore. people like pornography well, so much. Pornhub has just made it so that like, you know, yeah, but, every, everyone's seen it. But everyone the thing loves is that people are just in denial of it, right? Yeah. Like you were saying that um, even William Hayes had to quit a uh, presidential campaign that was mired in scandal yeah. because, or Every Republican senator that we learn goes to some seedy bathroom somewhere yeah. to receive blowjobs. Well, well, that's why, like, you know, Kinsey was such a huge shock in the 40s or the 50s, uh, because, you know, he w- he was making the case that premarital sex was actually the norm, not the exception. And um, it's like, we don't talk about that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, which people just denied. So we also watch Babyface, a 1933 movie. Probably uh, the most notorious pre-code movie. Yeah, right? if you search pre-code, that's the first one that comes yeah. up. It's another one about a woman that sleeps her way to the top or uses her feminine wiles for her own gain. So the movie starts in a seedy district of Pennsylvania where Barbara Stanwyck uh, is working at her father's uh, shitty gin joint. Uh, Her father, uh, a drunkard and a lout, often pimps her to his clientele. And uh, the only person she can confide in is the kindly cobbler who in the uncut version, did you see the uncut version? I don't, maybe. There's a, so there was a 75, there's a 71 minute version that was in circulation ever since its release. But there was a 75 minute print that was discovered in the archives in 2004, which apparently no one had ever seen. 
since its first release, and that's a version that's available on DVD now. So, so that version has another four minutes, some of which substantially alter the tone of the movie. One of the alterations was that the cobbler uh, read her a quote from Nietzsche. Oh, I did see that version, yes. <laughs> where, where Nietzsche said, All life, no matter how we idealize it, is nothing more or less than exploitation. And then he makes the case to her, Exploit yourself. Use use men to get what you want. And another scene that wasn't in the theatrically released version was when she's hitching a ride to the big city on a boxcar on a train and the yard man uh, discovers her uh, with her black friend. Uh, servant. Uh, servant, yes. yes. Uh, she she says to the yard man, oh, maybe we can work out a deal. And then there's a shot of the yard man going, hmm, yeah. yeah and, and it's implied that she fucks the yard man. Or gives him a blowjob, you know, or, one yeah. or the other. Sure. Whatever. Maybe even a handy. We don't know. <laughs> maybe the new, there, there's still a minute missing from even the most uncut version maybe that came out. Maybe he just wanted to see her boobs because <laughs> yeah. it was 1932 and uh, there was no resource for that sort Listen, of thing. Listen, as we just had that conversation before, everyone was a sex maniac in yeah, 1932. That's right. Flip and see through Tijuana Bibles and just... <laughs> oh, man, I can't wait to see Donald Duck have sex with Betty Boop in this Tijuana Bible. <laughs> if people don't know what Tijuana Bibles are, go and search it online. And, and lament that this is what your grandfather had to resort to. Um, so man, she... Dagwood's finally going to get it. <laughs> so, you know, the Tijuana Bible tradition still exists. Though. Does like, it? Well I, well, I mean, the I, internet. You've seen, like, yeah, on internet porn sites where there will be, like, these these banners on the side that it'll be, like, it'll be a picture of, like, Marge Simpson giving a blowjob. Yeah. Or, like, uh, you know, somebody from Family Guy having sex. I do not understand <laughs> the, the appeal of that. I think... <laughs> yeah, I don't want to kink shame. Yeah, let, let's have a conversation about sexual fetishes and how they develop. I think it's that when people mature and they discover themselves sexually, the thing that's prevalent around them, let it be The Simpsons mm. or Sonic the Hedgehog, gets those you know feelings applied to them and because of the way that we grow at a certain point that just stops right like you like what you like yeah and that's it did you know that marge simpson actually was on the cover of playboy a few years ago she was yeah like they did like a a, a sort of tastefully nude okay so she thing. wasn't like full nude no i uh she I, wasn't on the cover of penthouse i mean of course i flipped through it in the in, <laughs> in the in the 7-eleven whoa 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 did you have to crack that plastic to get into it oh, maybe i saw it on the internet I don't <laughs> okay know. but i need i somehow i saw it. listen i was on Pornhub. I, there was a I video was, I, I searched simpsons porn <laughs> did you ever see the comic by brandon reese that's like it's been parodied and recopied a bunch of times on the internet which is like a guy with a t-shirt that says no fear <laughs> and then another guy has a t-shirt that says Simpsons porn is illegal. And then his t-shirt says one fear. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So anyway, Barbara Stanwyck makes it to the big city uh, and she asks the guy working at the, the big corporation, surely there's a place for somebody like me in this big building. And he says, do you have any experience? And she says, plenty. And then, you know, they th fuck, they fuck. And then she goes to the next floor and then she fucks a young John Wayne. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then and then she fucks her way to the next floor and the next floor and the next floor until uh things get complicated things get complicated and she she meets a good man who uh wants to uh doesn't yeah. care about her past that's right yeah uh and both versions have alternate endings one that's uh happy and one that uh, has her uh, not getting with the man really uh is the uncut version her not getting with the man because uh, in the version that we watch is a bit of a tragic finale and then she still has a change of heart i think that's the, the that's the happy ending oh that's the happy yeah. ending like she oh. like I, well i don't know if she gets with him no yeah well yeah. it kind of implies that he may die yeah yeah but i really enjoyed this movie 
uh, probably more than I enjoyed Redheaded Woman, because Redheaded Woman is the more trashy version of the yeah. story. Well, this one plays like the drama more real, especially in the first act where Barbara Stanwyck is horribly treated by her father who pimps her out to someone. I remember the first time I saw this was at U of T. Uh, in a sex and cinema class, and it was probably the biggest crowd pleaser of the year. Really? How can you not love this movie? Th- this movie and Behind the Green Door were... were... <laughs> Behind the Green well, Door? Well, I don't know if Behind the Green Door was a crowd pleaser per se. But... Well, you know, on the Peter meter, but, rated a 10 but, out of 10. But the famous ejaculation scene towards the end, which is like a 10-minute slow-motion scene with psychedelic colors. For people that um, have not seen Behind the Green Door, it is not a pre-code movie. Do not watch yeah. it with your grandparents. But that ejaculation scene was a big crowd pleaser. <laughs> by that you mean that everybody, everybody ejaculated everybody you know started jerking off no they lied. oh man this episode's so dirty what is this loose cannons <laughs> for the movie that we picked for this podcast we just ended up uh doing two films that happened to have bad women mm-hmm. aka women that use their feminine wiles to get somewhere in life but the uh pre-code wave kind of created a bunch of little genres as it went along whether it would be like the gangster picture with public enemy and Scarface, uh, the wave of horror films that came out in the 1930-1935 range, like Black Cat, Frankenstein, most of the universal monster pictures that people know and love. King Kong was a very contentious movie and had to be pretty heavily censored afterwards uh, when it was re-released. Also, Frankenstein, the 1931 Frankenstein, until the 90s, it had two very prominent scenes cut from it, one of which was when the monster throws the little girl into the river. That was cut after the first release. And the part where after Colin Clive says, it's alive, it's alive, he says, in the name of God, now I know what it feels like to be God. And whoa, Setzer did not like the fact that he was comparing himself to a deity. So some of the kind of pre-code icons would also include Mae West. Uh, the Marx Brothers? Yeah, the Marx Brothers, uh, including uh, Horndog himself, Harpo. <laughs> You know, W.C. Fields had this famous short, The Dentist, from 1932, where he, like, plays a dentist and he's operating on a woman and she, like, puts her legs around him and he kind of picks her up while he's operating her. And that had to be cut after the code. Because they assumed they were fucking or something Well, because it it was very suggestive. In fact, W.C. Fields liked to fuck with the censor board by saying things like, he had a catchphrase where he would go, Godfrey Daniel, in a way that sounded like goddamn. Yeah. Godfrey Daniel. (laughs) (laughs) And also, can't forget Betty Boop, uh, with her visible garter belt and occasionally her visible panties. Well, if you look at Betty Boop after the censor board finally started locking down, she's wearing a higher shirt, her Mm. skirt is longer. And she wasn't as popular after. No, yeah, because people (laughs) want the Betty Boop Tijuana Bible, I guess. (laughs) People want a sexy cartoon to look at. (laughs) Who sounds like a little girl. Yep. (laughs) But... When you look at the pre-code films that we watch for this podcast, we also watch another one, Three on a Match. Which is one of my favorites. Uh, this one is by Mervyn Leroy, who did uh, I'm a Fugitive from the Chain Gang. Classic and, film. And hundreds of other Warner Brothers movies. It's weird that like all the directors that we did are all like factory line directors. Yeah. So this movie uh, stars the two biggest stars of the 30s, Lyle Talbot and Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> Which one will become a star? <laughs> Well, who knows? Uh, anyway, but, but it actually stars... And starring Betty Davis. Yeah. Well, not really. So it actually stars Joan Blondell, Betty Davis, and Anne Dvorak as three women who went to school together, one of whom uh, was a bad girl and served a time in the, the reform school. But they grow up, and it turns out that the bad girl becomes the good girl, and the good girl, the rich one, played by Anne Dvorak, becomes tired of being rich, becomes tired of her husband, and decides to go slum it with a sinister gangster 
and a gambler, played by Lyle Talbot. Yep, that's Lyle, right. Lyle Talbot, if you don't know who Lyle Talbot is, uh, he was briefly pitched as being a Warner Brothers star in the early 30s and then was quickly discarded. Later on, he appeared in uh, Edwards movies. He appeared in one of the Batman serials as Commissioner Gordon. Uh, and he also, I think, appeared on Ozzie and Harriet on TV. But uh, his daughter, Margaret Talbot, writes for The New Yorker now, and she wrote a really good book about him a few years ago called The Entertainer. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. So there's your Lyle Talbot episode of The Important <laughs> Cinema Club. Club. You don't have to ask us now. We gave everything we're going to give. So uh, Lyle Talbot is deeply in debt, and also he's got Anne Dvorak addicted to drugs. And then the gang comes to collect the debt. And who's in the gang? Uh, Mr. Humphrey Bogart himself. And when the two of them are on screen, it's like, yeah, I get it, why Bogart became the star. <laughs> but that actually only happens near the end of the film, mm. because for, like, the first half, you assume this will be just another, like, woman uses her feminine wiles to dominate a man and mm. get her way. But instead, it turns into even a more depressing story, <laughs> where the woman tries to run away from her boring, rich life and ends up, like, abandoning her child, who's played by the most annoying child actor in the history <laughs> of cinema, who talks like this all the time. So Joan Blondell, who plays the girl who went to the reform school but then later became good, adopts Anne Dvorak's child. And in fact, she marries Anne Dvorak's good ex-husband. Who's much older than them, but you know, that's okay, right? Um, and so Lyle Talbot thinks, well, I can get out of my debt by going to her ex-husband and... Uh, stealing her kid. Stealing her kid. Which uh, happens in the last 10 minutes of the film. Yeah, uh, but those last 10 minutes... Holy shit! Oh my God. Uh, do, we, do we even want to spoil it? If you want to watch it, stop listening now. Go, it's, it's only 70 minutes long. Which it's, is, six, mm, it's 63 minutes. Ugh, beautiful. Yeah. But like those last... 10 minutes have a uh, little um, joke that Con Air would later go and steal. <laughs> For all you Con Air heads, you'll understand when you see it. Yeah. And includes a body smashing against the pavement. <laughs> you know, uh, they don't do it like they used to do in 1932. So this movie to me, super fun. Got lot, lots of crazy stuff in it. Violence, drugs, sex, kidnappings. Prostitution, L Lyle, drug addiction. Lyle Talbot, the whole love thing. You love Lyle Talbot. Done, done in an hour. Yeah. This is what I want from a movie. Well, and that's the best thing about pre-code cinema is that it feels so much more alive than the stuff that would come afterwards when you would get more cookie cutter studio product. Well, uh, some good movies in the studio era too. Yeah, it is. But yeah. there's kind of a spark that I felt that all the movies that we watched felt kind of like trashy B movies and yeah. just wanted to entertain. Yeah, yeah. And I love that. Yeah, sometimes you wish that the B-movies that came after would, like, go there a yeah. little more. Yeah, like, the thing is, like, if you showed any of the movies we watched for this podcast to, like, high schoolers, they would get into it almost instantly, I think, because it does give that stuff right off the top. A few too many of these movies pushed it a few too far. A few too many busybodies in right-wing groups decided to protest. And that's when the CIS code actually started getting enforced. Yeah, the American Roman Catholics came along. And it was 1934. And launched a campaign against what they deemed the immorality of American cinema. That's the Catholic Legion of Decency, which is still operating in some form. Like, they, it's the United States Office of Catholic Bishops. Uh, still rates movies. Ugh, and, terrible. And, but instead of C for condemned, it's O for offensive. And actually, when I was at journalism school, I interviewed the guy who reviews movies. <laughs> really? For the Catholics. And I, I quite liked him. I found he, I thought he was pretty thoughtful. Huh. Uh, but he is not 
Uh, it, <laughs> I don't have the same view as the same. <laughs> yeah, Will's like, you know what? He was starting to turn uh, I, my I, mind I, around. Well, you know, uh, we, 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 were t- we were talking and I said to him, you know, I know you have to see a lot of bad movies, so I sympathize with you. <laughs> and he's like, you know who I really love? Ed Wood. And you're like, hmm, yeah, well, maybe I could get on the page with w- him. Well, the Catholics introduced this new thing more recently where they give an L rating, which means limited adult audience, which means a movie uh, with themes that are only appropriate for an adult audience, but which are acceptable to a thoughtful adult audience huh interesting uh which is an interesting needle to thread because <laughs> wouldn't you just want to make it offensive and nobody go and see it well i think brokeback and- mountain was oh for offensive because at some point it just becomes incompatible with their views but yeah. then yeah yeah they hate gay people yeah they hate gay people <laughs> uh, so uh, anyway the the do's and don'ts of the studio production code uh maybe it would be fun to read a few of these uh, you have to show so obviously no nudity no excessive violence no profanity uh in love scenes you have to keep at least one foot on the ground uh which is the only way i can have sex <laughs> uh, so you can't do the uh one leg <laughs> wait i'm trying to think about say? this the, the uh the old one leg <laughs> Yeah, we, we've all been there, Justin. The old one-leg kazoo or whatever. <laughs> one-leg kazoo. I don't know what kazoo means in this context. <laughs> well, I would like you to discover it. Just search it on the internet and you will know more. Kisses can last no longer than three seconds. The kisses last long in these pre-code films yeah. we watch. And that Alfred Hitchcock famously got around it and notorious by having Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman kiss a bunch of times, like a hundred times shortly. Uh, you have to show that crime does not pay. You can have no brothels. So there was a scene in Citizen Kane where uh, Kane and the newspaper boys go to a brothel that got cut, which I can't believe that Orson Welles actually thought he was going to get it in the movie. You can have no white slavery, no miscegenation. Yeah, no white slavery. No white slavery. Uh, You cannot ridicule the clergy and uh, no willful offense to any nation, race or creed. Uh, That's probably one that wasn't enforced very Um, much willful offense. <laughs> okay. uh so i mean you know the consequences of this uh you have a scene like kind of the most that somebody could get around this was like in casablanca when that woman comes up to humphrey bogart and says and she's trying to get a visa out of casablanca from captain renault and she says uh if if a good girl did a bad thing for her husband but kept it in her heart uh, would would that be forgivable? And then he said, "You might, you should probably just go home or something like that. <laughs> or I'd rather just go home, whatever his line was. Yeah, well, uh, they just kept trying to thread that needle until finally, uh, I guess the swinging 60s came around. Well, one of the movies that turned it around was The Pawnbroker in the 60s because mm-hmm. in that movie, a woman shows her breasts for like a second. But what people have to know about The Pawnbroker, it's also a Holocaust drama. Yeah, so it was introduced as like a one-time only exception. You know, that this... Uh, because of the superior artistic value of this film, we'll let it slide. And of course, once you do that, like it's over. <laughs> oh yeah, listen, now we'll let you show breast and boobs, but yeah. only if it's a nature film. Yeah. And they're like, oh yeah, okay, we can do that. Oh, and it's maybe worth pointing out that while this was happening, while the big studios were stuck with this code, there were other independent filmmakers who uh, were not bound to the studio system. Well, yeah, because it was a self-imposed code, the same thing like the Comic Code Authority mm-hmm. that would come along in the 50s for comic books so they were only bound by the law so you know they would go around to towns uh with roadshow films about venereal disease mom and dad you know mom and dad or later when the supreme court ruled that nudism per se was not obscene you got nudist camp movies yeah baby and it was just you know whatever whatever could be played in a town 
As long as they don't, um, you know, chase you off on a rail, you're good. Yeah. Just before we uh, get off the subject of pre-code films, I did get to see Heroes for Sale, a William Wellman film. And that's a good example of a film that doesn't feel trashy. It's actually using the kind of pre-code period to delve more into just misery. Because mm. like a World War One film about a soldier who doesn't get recognized for all the stuff that he does, gets addicted to morphine, <laughs> um, worked in a factory that then gets mechanized so everybody gets fired and ends him up in jail. And finally, he ends up a homeless man. And all this happens in a 70-minute span. Mm. And it's great, but it's a kind of incitement that this film would tackle that completely got stamped out after the code came into effect. But they're still out there, and you can watch them now in pristine versions. Like we mentioned, uh, Warner Brothers put out a bunch of box sets. Yeah, an excellent uh, series. I think there are like seven or eight of them now, Mm -hmm. all with like four or five movies on each. And if you have any pre-code films you feel that we need to see, feel free to send us an email Mm -hmm. at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. All right, so now it's letter time. We actually have one letter. It's letter time. It's letter time. That's my little tribute to Nicholas Piccolis. <laughs> of the classic video arcade in top 10? That's right. What do you think Nicholas Piccolis is doing right now? Well, I interviewed him two years ago. He, <laughs> you did? He, yeah, he works uh, at a radio station in Buffalo. Okay, I thought you were going to say Radio Shack. <laughs> Maybe, <a little laughs> Maybe, I don't know. And for people who don't know what that show was, you know, just, you know, so we can contextualize it, it was a show where kids got to watch other kids play video games. Yes, and it aired on YTV in Canada. <laughs> so the letter goes, Hello, Important Cinema Club. As I am especially fond of your takedown episodes, the Santa Clauses and Adam Agoyans of your back catalog to identify just two, I really enjoyed the latest episode's Ron Howard ribbing. What I'm wondering is if you'd ever consider tackling Hollywood's other great journeyman director, Rob Reiner. While I'm sure we can all agree Reiner's highs are far higher than Howard's, his lows may be even lower and also make up a greater chunk of his filmography. Do you think there's another director more deserving of the second banana journeyman designation than Reiner? Any thoughts or observations would be appreciated. Thanks, Zach Tennant. Ah, thanks, Zach. I think that Rob Reiner has one of the saddest late career periods, and by that I mean everything past... Uh, I think 1994. Yeah, yeah, that's when North came out. 19. Yeah. But because from 1984 to 1994, he had nothing but classics. Like, that was it. Yeah. And then I assume he bonked his head or something like that? or Spinal Tap, one of the all-time classics. Although I'm starting to wonder if that was as much Christopher Guest's doing as it was Reiner's. But then he has When Harry Met Sally, Stand By Me. Stand By Me is very good. A Few Good Men. I haven't seen A Few Good Men. I just saw The American President for my other podcast, but that's more of an Aaron Sorkin joint. And that's in his uh, decline career, uh, yeah. period. But the interesting thing about Rob Reiner is that he has continually made film. If you look at his IMDb, like every two years he's made a film. How about this movie he's got that's been on the shelf for a while where Woody Harrelson <laughs> plays LBJ and he's got this like heavy Mrs. Doubtfire makeup on his face. Did it ever play at any film? It it played at TIFF. It was a gala, of course, in the second half of the festival. That's when you know you're in trouble. And after that, it was just basically forgotten, I guess, because it never came out. Well, I think it might be coming out later this year. Um, Yeah, I think I I could see us doing a Rob Reiner episode. I don't, I would not call myself a fan. Uh, Uh, I mean, I would consider myself a fan of Princess uh, Bride. you're right. I forgot about Princess Bride. Princess Bride and This is Spinal Tap are two all-timers, and he gets he gets into heaven on those alone. So I don't know if I call him a journeyman in that respect, mm. just because he does have those classics in his career. I would just call him more of a sad director as time went on. I enjoy him as an actor. Oh, I, he's great as an actor. I thought he was really fun in Wolf of Wall Street just recently. 
All right, and um, Zach mentioned that he loves the episodes where we take down movies, which you don't do that often. We kind of talked about it in the last episode. Yeah. But we do do it a lot on the Patreon that we have. Because it's easier. <laughs> it's so easy. <laughs> like this week, we did Transformers 5, The Last Night. Do you want to hear us sound off on the new Transformers film? Actually, we have a few nice things to say about it. <laughs> well, you won't know what they are unless you give us $5 a month to get four new episodes. Who are our new subscribers that we want to thank? Well, I'd like to thank Tom, Rary, Sam, Andrew, Brandon, and April. Thank you very much for becoming Patreon subscribers. Because you only get really half of the important Cinema Club experience. Yeah. And once you get that other half, all will be made clear. Because let's pull the curtain back a little bit. We actually record the Patreon ones before we do the normal ones. So we're all fired up. (laughs) And we wave our hands and stuff like that. And this is the much more calm Justin and Will. Yeah. All right, so next week. Sofia Coppola. Why? Topical. Yeah, because uh, her remake of The Beguiled came out, the yeah. Don Siegel Clint Eastwood film. And, uh, you know, it'll be easy. She doesn't have that many films we have to watch. We're going to get it to it eventually, so why not now? Uh, I'm going to have to watch somewhere, aren't I? The Stephen... Uh... You don't have to. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. Okay, I was going to say, if you've seen it, there's no need to rewatch. But it'll give us a chance to also watch New York Stories, which she oh, co-wrote the Francis Ford Coppola Oh, I'm starting to reconsider. <laughs> How about Godfather 3? <laughs> I, I like Godfather 3. I can dust up. Uh, the uh, Blu-ray that I have and put it into the player. I can uh, dust off the VHS tape that I watched in 2005 and have not seen since. It's Godfather 3. <laughs> All right. So that's what we're going to be doing next week. If you have any questions, comments, uh, send us an email at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah. And until then, my name is Justin DeClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thank- and the balcony is closed. <laughs> Wait, what's that from? That's from Siskel and Ebert. Oh, is it? We're kind of the new Siskel and Ebert. <laughs> We've talked about Lucio Fulci on this podcast before. Uh, he's somebody who had one of those like golden periods in the late 70s, early 80s. First of all, Italian horror filmmaker made The Beyond, made Zombie. Yeah, he made like a bunch of, you know, splatter classics. And for people who haven't heard the episode we did on him before, what's interesting about his career is that he was actually a comedy filmmaker for a long time kind of stumbled into making zombie and that really took off and he just made that the rest of his career so i recently watched two of the films from his late period the late period is not well regarded uh i saw the blu-ray of enigma on will's desk and i went why did you get this Uh, and i said that's a good question (laughs) because i have too much money But not me. Donate to our Patreon. <laughs> I got it for uh, the hour-long documentary about uh, Fulci in decline. That's... that's how, like, distributors get us, yeah. right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, as we mentioned before, it's like Beyond the Darkness, the Joe D'Amato film is remastered on Blu-ray. It's like, ugh, I don't care. But there's an hour documentary about him, and I'm like, well, yeah, yeah and that's, that's, here's my money. That's why I bought Beyond the Darkness on Blu-ray. So you got Enigma, and what was the other one? Uh, right? Zombie 3, which is actually Zombie 2. That's right. And Zombie 3... It's because Zombie 2 was the Fulci one and Zombie was the George Romero one. Yeah, that was right. also Dawn of the Dead. Zombie 3 was directed maybe 60% by Bruno Mattai. And Claudio Fargasso, the director yeah. of Troll 2. Because uh, Fulci got sick. But Enigma was a full-on Fulci joint, which is kind of a cross between Carrie and Suspiria, but without the style of those two. 
Zombie 3, Consumer Report, I thought it was super fun. Yeah, Zombie 3 is one of those trash classics. Yeah. Like, you can't go in expecting the beyond, but you expect a bunch of crazy bullshit, like the fact that uh, the film is narrated by a DJ who at the end reveals he has no eyes. Yeah. So I guess he's a zombie. And Enigma, not as good. Long, boring stretches, but several really good parts. One of which is a woman, a naked woman covered in snails. Listen. What do you do with that? Man, I haven't seen Enigma, and like I'm like, I guess I have to watch Enigma now. Okay, just look up that scene, because it's like you're looking at it, and you can't process what you're looking at. It's like Dali would be proud of an image like this, a woman covered in real snails. Do you feel a kind of completist mentality when it comes to filmmakers that you like in their later periods? Uh, I'm often interested in the later period because that's where the decline is. And it's kind of interesting to see, I don't know, what did, what did Edward Said say about late style? It's like, that's what, you know, that, that's when the style becomes more confrontational because it's going against the grain somehow. Uh, and, you know, in the later ones, it's like sometimes their style can be so extreme. They're so far into their own into their own head that seems cut off from the world somehow. Well, Fulci was always a director that feels like he was struggling. That's such bullshit that I just said, but it's like, you know, somebody like Chaplin <laughs> in his later... It could have let like 10 seconds go I, before. Because I felt guilty about what I just said because it's such bullshit. <laughs> the but, second you started was going, uh, I'm going to quote Edward yeah. Said. I was like, oh man, all right, sure. But like, I look at some of the later Chaplin movies, like King of New York, and it's like, it's so Chaplin to the exclusion of any, yeah, but it's any not good. advancement. No, but it's interesting because yeah, it's it like, is. It's, it's, it's shtick at this point. It's self-parody. But at that point, yeah, like, because Fulci even made a film that was a self-parody that starred him yeah. called Cat in the Brain. Yeah. That was all about him just seeing violent images. And it's not very good. No, it's not. Um, it sounds great on paper. It's like Lucio Fulci does eight and a half. And you're yeah. like, whoa, sweet. Yeah. Then you got to sit down and watch it. Yeah, and he's not a good actor. <laughs> no, he's not. But he is wearing a great Elmer Fudd getup in the film. 